carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. You're in the mainframe. It's eating to Greg's entire system. Access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. Hello, and welcome to We're In, a podcast that gets inside the brightest minds in cybersecurity. I'm Blake Subcheck, your host, and joining me today is none other than founding We're In podcast host Jeremiah Rowe, who is now Field Chief Information Security Officer right here at Synac. It's great to have a familiar face back on the program, and we'll jump right into all things pen testing and go over some recent cyber threats like the MoveIt vulnerability as well. But before we do, let's hear from our sponsor. Attackers scan your systems daily. You just don't get the report. Synax Security Testing Platform stands out by drawing on a trusted network of global security researchers. From web apps to headless APIs, our platform helps you find and fix gaps in your security posture. Learn more at synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K.com. Thanks so much, Jeremiah, for joining us on the podcast here. I feel like, you know, this is familiar turf for you, host emeritus of We're In, and appreciate you taking some time out of your busy field chief information security officer schedule to join us on the show. So appreciate it. Thanks, Blake. It's obviously a pleasure to be back on the show. Being a part of the initial inception of We're In, I'm always a huge fan of the show and where the show's gone and honestly, where you've taken the show. I think you've done an awesome job and I've really loved listening to a lot of the guests that you've brought on as well as the exceedingly thoughtful questions you've brought up and posed throughout the uh, new season. Well, I appreciate it. Standing on the shoulders of giants, we'll say. So definitely owe it to you to get this show on the road. And we've had an awesome slate of guests, including a friend of the show that we'll talk about later, Jack Resider, who I know featured you on his Darknet Diaries famous podcast, which was quite an exciting episode. So, But let's jump right in and start by talking about spies, because I think we all love a good spy story. And you know, throughout your career at various junctures, you've been tasked with putting yourself in the shoes of a spy, or I'm not accusing you, don't get me wrong, or a nation state cyber adversary, but let's just get this straight. I'm not a spy. I've never (laughs) just in case it needed clarification. But I guess what do you think defines that adversarial perspective? and, And why is it important for organizations to consider the adversarial perspective? So that's kind of a unique phraseology. In a lot of cases, It is subjective to whomever is going about developing a methodology. The one that I particularly use, which I think goes hand in hand with helping to think like an adversary or think like a bad individual, bad person, is the cyber kill chain that was developed initially by Lockheed Martin. And that goes through sort of the steps from the point of inception to compromise and then actions on objectives. And so it begins with reconnaissance, weaponization, delivery, exploitation, installation, command and control, and then actions on objectives. And the goal is to, once you get there, to then rinse and repeat. Because ideally, once you've compromised a system, you've exploited it. Once you privilege escalate, then you obtain all your data and you pilfer and you figure out if you can utilize it for a botnet or if you can take control over that particular system. And if you can't, then you laterally move and get off of it and you repeat the process all over again. Either way, once you've determined what your actions on your objective is going to be, uh, you still have to move and you still have to either expand and grow your internal botnet you're creating or you need to get off of that particular machine so you can migrate and laterally move to another one so you can 
try to not be caught. That's the goal is to go undetected within an organization so that you can ultimately undertake whatever your objectives are. I feel like we talk about lateral movement as an industry somewhat hand wavy of like, oh yeah, and then they achieved lateral movement. I feel like that's one of those that's probably easier said than done. What's your experience been with that part of the equation? In that particular kill chain model, they put reconnaissance up front, but in reality, you're doing reconnaissance throughout every single step of the process. You're trying to identify what it is you don't know, what's there, how you can leverage it, what's being exposed, what's talking to what, how are they communicating, which protocols are they leveraging, which versions of those protocols are they leveraging, and then research. <laughs> like 95% of, of an engagement is research because you are constantly having to look up all the information you've obtained throughout the engagement process so that you can then continue further down the pipeline of engagement. Now, what a lot of nation states will do or advance persistent threats is they have toolkits that they create. It's very much like a platform, right, that you can think of in any website. It operates very similar to various toolkits that they've got options that are pre-coded into this. And remote access Trojan, so RAT, it allows them to automatically take advantage of specific functionalities that are on systems that they're targeting. So in the case of, you know, the move it transfer vulnerability, right? So the CVE 2023-34-362. I had that up. I did not memorize that. I was going to say, I'm impressed. That just, so as we're recording this, that vulnerability just landed like a couple weeks ago. I think what, May 31st is when it first, news first broke. Now, do you have the sub CVEs though of the extra vulnerabilities that emerged and move it after? That's the big <laughs> test. I do not. No, I've got the specific one. But the reason why I just happened to have that up, but I was, I was reading through the proof of concept of it, that particular type of attack could in essence be automated through remote access trojan to once they've gone through and they've manually fleshed out specific processes that have to take place and conditions that have to be put in place in order for this to be actionable they can put in checks to automatically test for those things throughout the process of compromise and if they do that then they can have a particular remote access trojan then install itself and then beacon back out to establish a remote connection elsewhere that's in essence what a lot of these uh, companies i'll say companies these malicious entities are doing they're fully fledged development shops that are producing software as a service ransomware as a service so that these things can be leveraged by others and themselves to perpetuate any number of things. It's a business. But with that kind of a process, you get a twofold manifestation of things happening. One, you get chaos, right? You get chaos that's happening. And then these entities to which they're paying to utilize these services have their own agendas. And so maybe it's to cause chaos, maybe it's to disrupt services, maybe it's to obtain data, maybe it's to sell things to the black market, who knows, right? But Throughout every single one of these tools that are created, the people who created them also have backdoors into any one of those shells that have been also created. So they've got their own agenda on top of the agenda of the person utilizing it. And so it's really interesting because you can almost cause a misdirection for what the people are doing who are currently utilizing it to what truly is the impetus behind why it was created to begin with. 
Well, I'm glad you mentioned the fact that a lot of these bad actors have effectively their own development shops, because I feel like we haven't really fully come to grips with the good guy side development shops of, you know, these continuous integration and continuous delivery processes that are now sort of considered widely adopted best practices for building software and potentially introducing vulnerabilities as part of that process. I guess, how has that sort of changed the landscape for some of these blockbuster vulnerabilities? We talked about Move It. I mean, I suppose you could drop Log4j into that equation, any one that comes along. That's a great question. And I say it's a great question because it touches on a secondary or tertiary effect of moving fast. Getting business done fast and being able to innovate and push the bounds of what we know of technology today is exceedingly important for business operations. It's also predicated on selfish desires to be the best, selfish desires to take market share and whatever else. So we have to consistently innovate at the speed of business and business has to move fast because time is money and time is value. Now, where we begin to have issues is with security. Security is one of those basic, in my opinion, basic human functions that we all should have a reasonable uh, expectation of, regardless of whatever it is we're doing. We should be able to feel secure. Now, security moves slow, traditionally. When you combine that into a business process that has to move fast, you get heads butting. And so there have been these attempts to create integration flows and have business integrate with security and security integrate with business. And what does that look like? And how do we do it so that it's faster than it's traditionally been? Because traditionally, security has been the stopgap for a lot of things. Like they've been the barriers to, to the external world of innovation. They've stopped things and inhibited growth. And that's why business doesn't like security. So throughout these kinds of developmental processes, we've seen things like DevSecOps arrive. Now, DevSecOps is meant to be a process to which developers and security coexist in a agile framework to work at the speed of business or get closer to the speed in which business wants to operate. The way it's integrated is different across the board, depending on whatever initiatives businesses have. It can be drastically different from one organization to the next organization, but the idea behind it is that we want to move faster and we want to do it more secure. But what does that look like, right? So that's the question. And as we continue to push for innovation and push for development and push for expansion by human natural processes, we will want to sidestep anything that is going to inhibit us because we're selfish and we don't want to be inhibited. We want to develop and we want to innovate and we want to do great things and we want to change the world. Speak for yourself. I'm content just kind of lying back and kicking my heels up. It's a Friday on this recording here. So yeah, no, but I hear you. That makes a lot of sense. And when you move fast like that, and you want to get things done, yeah, security is, needless to say, going to be a challenge. And that's the idea behind a lot of these particular vulnerabilities still being implemented and introduced throughout the software process. Because, you know, quite honestly, they may or may not be tested throughout the development lifecycle. And I mean, like, not tested from an automated approach, but tested from a manual, creative, humanistic approach to exploiting potential vulnerabilities to determine whether there are or are not holes there. 
Right. When you're constantly developing, constantly pushing things out, the vulnerabilities can emerge at any point in that process. So how are you checking for those? And actually, I wanted to speak to your personal, you know, professional history as a pen tester, which I think gets at some of the point you're making here, which is you would <laughs> drop by and, and test somebody and, you know, it'd be done for the day, I guess. What can you tell me about that experience? First of all, just to kind of set the stage for what that was like. We got to do some fun stuff as a pen tester and as a red team operator. Like for me, it was living one big puzzle that had mystery associated with it that allowed me to make movements towards identifying a mystery and solving puzzles. And that's what I love. Are you like an escape room aficionado? I feel like that's a similar mindset in some Right. Like, so that's why I love escape rooms. Yeah. That's you the do? exact same reason. Oh, I love them. I did not know that. Yes. Because it's figuring things out, right? And that in and of itself still funnels into like spies, right? What do spies do? They do mysterious kind of things. But the mundane aspect of what it's like a day in the life of a pen tester is in reality, us, our team, I can speak colloquially for us, what we would do is we would, you know, maybe get four hours a day of testing an asset. And that's being, you know, overly fair. We would have to spend time in meetings, have to spend time writing reports, doing training, having to follow up and do research and follow up on fire drills that have happened and investigate new things that are constantly coming out. And we're bound by the other team members that we had. And so we were constantly dealing with this backup of a bandwidth related issue to where we couldn't fully meet all of the challenges and demands that were put on us from a day-to-day -day basis. And because of these things, it just created this waterfall snowball effect of ever expanding drives that we had to complete that we can never get to. Requirements that were backed up in this long, huge, heavy bandwidth of testing requirements and testing applications that were always delayed. And so we were always having to do very administrative based things. And this led to very little operational stuff that we could do as far as the fun part of what pen testing and red teaming is, right? Yeah, you're constantly shoveling through that paperwork, that backlog. That doesn't sound like the fun part. The fun part is getting to break into things and creatively work around problems. That seems like the fun part. Like, it's easy to tear things down and to break them. Like, I've got this cup here, this beautiful, well, maybe not beautiful, but it's a mug. And I could throw it on the ground. It's super easy to break it. And I'm like, I know the vulnerability of this is the ground. It will break it. I don't even trust myself like that. I've got a plastic one here, so I, I don't think I could throw it on the ground and break it. It's hard to make it, though. I couldn't make this thing if I wanted to. I could tell you how to break it, though, and I love breaking things. That's the fun part. And it's funny you bring up the paperwork aspect because I feel like that's actually a little bit of a trope in spy movies where you know they're doing all this flashy stuff and then you actually talk to real life CIA operatives and whatnot and they're like, yeah, that would be so much paperwork if we tried to do any of that. It would just be a disaster and you'd never be able to do any of that because you would be drowning in paperwork for like years afterward. It sounds like there's there's not necessarily a lot of actual testing getting done at the end of the day. I mean, not to knock your former employers here or anything, but how do you do things differently? I am trying very hard not to plug the company that I work for here. Honestly, without doing that, that's one of the reasons why I moved to where I'm currently at, because of the way that they're approaching offensive security testing today. The thing that you could do, right, is to help solve for some of that bandwidth issue problem, right, is we're really talking about the heart of talent gap. 
talent gap shortages within the industry, right? The talent crisis within cybersecurity today. And I think I was reading a statistic the other day and I can't quote this. And so I could very well be wrong in repeating this, but today I believe there was a projected opening for close to 700,000 cybersecurity related jobs that are needing to be filled today. And by 2023, they're looking at somewhere around, what is it, 3.4 million. Now, if you look at that, that's jobs that have to be filled by 2023, 3.4 million jobs. That's astronomical. I think that might be worldwide, right? Cybersecurity related jobs that are going to be in requirements. That's a lot. And so talk about talent crisis. That's everywhere. Now, when you start combining that with developers and typical business operations and in technology in general, especially cybersecurity focused, we're seeing a massive shift for an increase in demand because we're innovating at the speed of business, but the speed of business and the innovation in which we're moving still can't keep up with the human element of it. And so how do you bridge the gap between what's needed and what we can give? And that's automation. I get the temptation to plug Synac here in a little bit and some of the work that we do. And we'll hear from Synac in the advertisements on this episode, don't you worry. But I will say, you know, that problem that you frame is certainly not unique to any one company. And, you know, and actually it's it's been really interesting to see in the years that I've been involved in the InfoSec community, just how much it's grown, even against the backdrop of, yes, we need more talent, we need more people coming out to join community, but there's still ways to go. And I'd be curious. So you served in the Marine Corps. Thank you for your service, by the way. I know there's a big push to kind of translate skills, maybe from other areas, maybe from the armed services, maybe from somewhere else into the cybersecurity arena, given this talent gap that you just described. What would be your advice to somebody, maybe service members or maybe somebody else from another vertical, considering entering the cybersecurity field or trying something a bit different? I would say that I would highly recommend anybody that's transitioning from a service-related position to at least take a look at cybersecurity. One, I find that those who have served have a like mindset in many ways, and a lot of us think very uniquely and have unique skill sets that translate really well to cybersecurity. Now, I'm not saying that to try to dissuade others from also doing it. I think anybody who wants to come into cyber should regardless of what they think about themselves. Like, I think if you are just curious, take a look at it and see if it's for you because there's so many different aspects and interesting caveats and holes that you can get down within cybersecurity. You can think of it like an umbrella with all of these different departments that fit underneath the umbrella and the umbrella itself is cybersecurity. You may like doing regulations and uh, administrative style tasks, or you may like learning how to think adversarially and focus on what's broken. And maybe you've got a unique keen eye for, for pulling out the little nuanced differentiation between a code base. And that can just allow you to flesh out a potential exploit that might be there, whereas others may not have seen it. Each of you are unique and each of you bring value and everybody should, if you're curious, take a look at it. Now, I do have, like you said, I've got a background from the Marine Corps and I think that I think uniquely, I don't know, maybe that's just me being selfish and (laughs) I think service members have a unique skill set that they can translate over to it. So does everybody else. So you know what? Just everybody come to cybersecurity. We've got roles. 
they're open. By 2023, we need to fill 3.4 million of them. So please come. Enough said. Enough said. Well, I like that umbrella analogy because there are so many different facets to this industry. And one of them lately that's come up a lot has been this API security push. And that was something that I, to be honest, I just had no idea what that was. I was like, what's an API? What's API security? When I first started looking into it, I was so confused. And then you read these statistics like the vast majority of all web traffic is routed through APIs nowadays. More than nine in 10 companies have acknowledged at least one API-related security incident in the last 12 months. That's according to this recent survey by the Enterprise Strategy Group. What's going on here? What accounts for this uptick? So APIs are a large part of how we can redistribute functional processes throughout dynamic web applications. If we were creating applications today to operate under a sequential processes, we just wouldn't be able to operate the same way we do today. We wouldn't be able to accomplish the same style of business. So if you think of an application, you can, again, I guess, use the umbrella analogy. You can think of an application as an umbrella, but every process and everything that causes the application to function the way it does is broken into modules that fall underneath that umbrella. Now, each one of those modules could have an API interface or microservice or some sort of external call that has its own way of processing unique and distinct from all the other buckets that are underneath the umbrella. Now, this helps to redistribute processing capabilities, which causes efficiency. It, it makes the application to run and operate in a unique and fast way that is operating at the speed of business, which we just discussed, you know, agile development and innovation prior to this. And so that's kind of the why, right? Now, the why directly leads into now I've got a lot of extra pieces of things that I need to look at, and I don't really know what they're doing. And there's a lot of dynamic processes happening and things are uniquely changing and shifting. And I don't know what's going on. I think I do, but I don't. And so, you know, what do you do? Like maybe each one of those pieces of the web application itself, especially if it's a large governmental website that might be from, you know, a large entity that has multiple divisions underneath it. And each one of those divisions has their own development team and nobody talks together. And each one of those development teams are developing for their own piece of that module underneath the umbrella, which is the web application. You can easily see how things can get lost in translation. Now, what does that do? That directly opens us up or others up to being compromised because we have pieces of a whole not communicating together, not functionally testing throughout iterative processes, and not taking a look at all of these spidering pieces that are connecting external to pull back additional information, which are application programming interfaces or APIs. It's just a matter of figuring out partly where these are in your environment and how they interact. But I mean, I'm not going to lie. I still scratch my head about like headless APIs, the difference between, you know, the, <laughs> these various, it's such a complicated field. And, you know, to your earlier point about the need for talent to like people who are really specializing in APIs, right. To actually dive deep and can know the quirks and, you know, it's got its own special set of OWASP top 10 vulnerabilities that's like distinct from the one for general web applications. It's like, here's the API version of that, which I find so interesting. You're absolutely right. Like APIs, 
require their own specialized skill set. So in the field of offensive security testing or penetration testing, red team operations, you will have a hopefully a team that's broken up into various subject matter experts, such as individuals who are good at, you know, APIs, individuals who are good at just general web applications, individuals who are good at host or infrastructure testing. So testing unique ports out of the 53,535 unique ports that could be on a server, testing each one of those from a unique way and being able to bypass, you know, specific lower level infrastructure through the OSI model, right? Or you've even got sections of the industry who are focused on operational technology. So industrial control devices, these in and of themselves are vastly unique and different than IT systems. And so where's the disparity? Well, the disparity lies with the talent in which you focus on because each one of these realms might be an inch wide, but they go six miles deep. And so no one human being can know everything about everything. And so you need to break up and have a collection of subject matter experts that are uniquely focused and all geared towards offensively testing assets. But because of the way we design up applications and systems today, it requires multiple subsets of information and and capabilities across the board to be able to thoroughly test it. And that's why unique skill sets are highly valued and highly important. There'll be a pretty big accumulation of these skill sets and talented individuals in Las Vegas shortly with the annual Hacker Summer Camp, Black Hat and DEF CON. You're a DEF CON veteran, right? You're both an actual veteran and a DEF CON veteran. What can you tell people who might not be familiar with these events or what they what they might want to get out of them? Yeah, so throughout that time frame, I believe there may be, it may have changed since then, but I am aware currently of around three kind of conferences that go on all around that same time, starting with Black Hat, and then you have B-Sides Las Vegas. And around that same time, you also have DEF CON that happens Uh, sequentially right after Black Hat and sort of in tandem with B-Sides Las Vegas. But more specifically, Black Hat and DEF CON are uniquely geared. They're both founded by the same individual, so the Dark Tangent. Now, they're both uniquely specified towards different categories, right? So one category is more practitioner-focused and the other category is more business, strategic, higher-level-focused, and that's Black Hat. So Black Hat, you go to, you learn some really unique things, It's more higher level focused for business operations, business executives, more programmatic things, very much kind of in line with conducting business and teaching them things about the community. And then you have DEF CON, which is just awesome in so many regards. If you want to go to DEF CON to have fun, you will certainly have fun and you will probably see things you didn't want to. Uh, but <laughs> be careful out there, folks. It's hot in Las Vegas in the summer. Or maybe you do. Listen, no judgment here. I don't, you know, it's the Wild West out there, I hear. But you will be able to see some information and talks from some of the world's most renowned individuals in research and technology. And that's of huge value 
And so if you are a person that needs to stay up with the happenings of the industry, DEF CON and Black Hat are certainly places to go. If you're more technically focused, I think DEF CON is certainly the avenue you want to be within. There's workshops, there's villages, there's uniquely focused areas within offensive security testing like operational technology, hacking connected cars, the Red Team Village, there's the uh, Capture the Flag event that happens, and there is, of course, lots and lots of Kool-Aid and Jello that you can drink. <laughs> it's such an interesting slice of security culture, the DEF CON conference, and especially, and I remember the first time I, I went there, I think it was... 2014, I believe. Yeah, the 2014 DEFCON was my first DEFCON and I was going as a member of the as a member of the media, as a member of the press. Now in those days, they didn't charge you if you were a member of the press. Their, their big mantra was like everybody has to pay the fee no matter who you are, if you're government industry whatever. But the, the kind of unspoken secret at the time was that press would get in for free. I had no idea of this by the way. I'm just used to going around getting press passes. I show up and they start grilling me because they were encountering people social engineering their way in, trying to masquerade as press. And I was like, gosh, this is so strange. This conference organizer is like asking me all these questions. Like, are you really a journalist? Who's this? You say you're based in DC. Who's Michael Daniel? What does he do? And I'm just like, okay, whoa, whoa, back up a second. This is just odd. You know, I learned later that they're trying to defend against people just looking for the freebie badges because they found that exploit and are trying to maneuver around it. And to transition here a little bit to something that you mentioned on your Darknet Diaries podcast episode a few a few months back, which I definitely recommend listeners you all check out. It's uh, episode 125 if you want to hear the full story here. But to some of that social engineering point, or I guess just like a physical pen test co- that co- is coinciding with the digital aspect, I don't mean to ask you to rehash everything that happened there. But the upshot was, you know, delivering this report to essentially a client that that was just like, oh, shit, we broke in and got all your stuff. What can you tell us about that moment? I think there's an important lesson there in not siloing yourself off or boxing yourself into one mode of thinking, because the attackers certainly don't, right? The objective is to win at any cost. But businesses don't operate that way. We operate from a foundation of set rules and regulations to which we have to follow, to which we're bound by, to which we're boxed in by. The bad guys and gals don't care. So if you're operating from a true red team perspective, the goal is to win at any cost. Obviously, there there are rules and there are things that we're going to buy, but like we're not going to go out and like, you know waterboard somebody, right? Like that's not, that's not the type of winning we're talking about, though bad, bad people might. What we're talking about is using some of those same base level techniques that they would probably utilize. Like, hey, social engineering, the human element and wireless technologies, as well as jamming devices and just good old fashioned, like walking into places and pretending like we belong. Like these kinds of things go so far But in business operations today, people are afraid to do them. They don't want to do them because the risk and the liability is so high. And look, in my opinion, unless we continue to do these things, again, in my opinion, if we don't continue to do these things as an industry, then the bad people will continuously win because they have a leg up. Because there's a whole realm of things that we are just refusing to test for and test thoroughly for. And that's physical penetration testing, social engineering, obviously continual phishing, email development, and that sort of a thing. 
who is going to challenge me? There might be some people, right? But then the majority, that just by sheer psychology, the vast majority of individuals who will confront somebody else for doing wrong is so minute that I will always win. When I come into a place, who is going to challenge me if I'm wearing the right-looking uniform, if I look like I belong, and I'm walking in confidence? There's not many people that are just going to just challenge you and say, stop, who are you? What are you doing here? Like, Especially if I'm wearing a badge that looks like it belongs to, and that allows me access to the building. At that point, I just need to find a mistake in configuration that somebody did that allows me access to the network. That confidence can certainly go a long way. And sometimes it even even helps make things that would otherwise look suspicious look less so. Like I recall uh, I was talking with a physical penetration tester, I forget who, who mentioned that when he went in to do a physical pen test, they wanted to see if he could walk out with any company computers. So, you know, the traditional mindset might be go in, grab one computer, try to like hide it under your coat or whatever. No, he pushes in a cart. Get a cart. Takes... Every computer takes like 30 computers, says we're updating your IT, carts it right out. Nobody bats an eye. They all let yes. him let him just just cart the whole shebang out there. And it's just I was like, I never would have thought of that. I just it's 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 brilliant. It's it's also frightening for sure. Some exactly. of these defensive gaps. Nobody likes confrontation. Nobody's gonna stop and say, Hey, wait, are you actually IT? Are you actually upgrading our computers or whatnot? No, he just walked right out. Jason Street actually has done some pretty cool things, and there's been various shows about some of the uh, physical stuff that they've done where they've gone into banks and pretended to be IT and like they're going to update their computer systems, walked right into the back with a bash bunny, plugged it into the back, had a quick script that beaconed out that showed that they had remote access, and then they closed it back up again, like just walking right into a bank. Again, if you look like you belong and you act like you belong and you do it in confidence... I mean, people aren't going to pay attention. There's various stories that are written about people just not batting an eyelash at these individuals. You can get anywhere if you're carrying a ladder on your shoulder. Right? That's right. Like, oh, this guy knows where he's going. He's, yeah. got, he's got a ladder. He must be. He must belong here. A ladder in a brown jumpsuit onesie. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, so I wonder if there's any sort of digital equivalent to this discussion on the, you know, just tying things back to the cyber element because if there's some sort of obfuscation or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of what the, what the digital equivalent is of some of these pen testing maneuvers. The way that I would describe this is if you take a known payload that has known signatures that are written on this particular payload and you funnel it into a vulnerability scanner, you want that vulnerability scanner to be able to pick up on whatever this payload is, whatever it's trying to do. Now, you can run it through multiple iterations and you can begin to mutate and obfuscate these particular payloads in unique ways. Dress them up to look like package delivery folks, right? You can mutate them to look like different things in the eyes of the vulnerability scanner. And therefore, the vulnerability scanner says, come on through. You're fine. You're clean. That would be the most immediate example that I can think of from a technological-based perspective. It's the exact same payload that was just detected, but we just mutated it a couple different times and permeated it a bit, and all of a sudden it can't be seen. It reminds me a little bit of the early Log4j days when people were adding all these ever-increasingly elaborate strings to get around the web application firewalls with the Log4j payload. That's just like 
okay, we'll dress it up a little more. Do you do this bypass? Dress it up a little more and you're still getting through. It's really interesting. Exactly. That's the thing, right? Is that's why in a lot of ways, attackers can always stay ahead of us. We're not willing to do some things. We're not willing to test for some things. And there's no way we could possibly test for every permeation. And so, you know, how do we potentially prevent from these things? Well, there's new uh, processes and strategies coming about from doing security more from a strategic perspective instead of a reactionary perspective. And doing security testing more strategically is about leveraging the data. Yes, it's about doing the tactical stuff. Yes, it's about finding the exploitable things and fixing the things and making sure the systems are hardened. But it's about strategically choosing which systems we spend more time doing those on and which systems we decide to do maybe more vulnerability scanning focused on so we can begin to protect the high-valued assets that are within our environments overspending our monetary budgets on trying to do everything and then not really being able to do anything good. And so when we approach these things from more of a strategic approach, it begins to allow us to get a leg up and learn things about our systems that we didn't know before. It's about taking the data we're getting from these offensive operators and leveraging that data to better our systems over time grow our teams, learn from our mistakes, and figure out where our deficiencies lie within the organization. I'm glad we're ending things on a somewhat positive note. There's a lot of, here's how to break things in the nature of these discussions, but it's good to hear that there are approaches that that are, you know, that can be effective, certainly, in addressing some of these problems. Obviously, nothing's going to be 100% secure. That's just a kind of a truism of the field we work in. But Jeremiah, I really appreciate you joining me here on the show and always great to talk with you and looking forward to some of your next Cut to the Chase episodes. For those who may not have tuned into those, definitely recommend you check out those programs where J-Row, as we call them here, can really cut to the quick of some really important pressing security issues. So thanks again. And I think you knew this question was coming, but I do have to ask, what's something we wouldn't know about you just by looking at your LinkedIn profile? That's the goal, right? Is to put some things that are true and some things that are fake. So nobody knows what's really true and nobody knows what's really fake. Is this like two truths and a lie version? (laughs) That's right. Before I answer that, it's such an honor to be welcomed back to the show. Obviously, I'm very much excited, very much a fan of We're In, and I've spoken to various people out in the industry who also are. So thank you for having me. Something you wouldn't know about me from my LinkedIn is a really hard and unique question. When I was a young boy, I'd say young boy, maybe elementary, no, middle school, middle school. I was kicked out of my public library because I decided to use public resources in my library to create a naughty website that I shouldn't have created and stole all the source code from uh, local websites. And that's where I began my journey of technology. You you little Bobby tables to the library. <laughs> yeah. Or something. I, we don't we yeah. don't need to unpack the nature of the naughtiness, but we'll I'll just assume that it was insulting the principal of your school. Let's just let's just leave it there and we'll just let your imagination rain. <laughs> that's, <laughs> and that's what we do at We're in. <laughs> well, on that sobering note, thanks again and Thanks, Blake. Catch you soon. See ya. If you liked what you heard today, I hope you'll give us a five-star rating and review. It's a big help. And please share this episode if you know anyone who could appreciate a little InfoSec wisdom on their morning commute. We have a whole catalog of episodes well worth a listen, so you may want to check out past interviews as well. 
Finally, if you know someone who might be a good fit to appear on the podcast or have any comments or feedback, drop us a line at we're in podcast at synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K.com. Until next time. We're in is brought to you by Synac. If you're looking for on-demand, continuous access to the world's most skilled and trusted security researchers, you can learn more at Synac.com. Synac recently launched its Empower Partner program so that partner organizations can more easily offer the Synac pen testing platform to their own customers. This approach helps optimize Synac partners' technical competencies and allows them to better integrate Synac into their portfolios. It's a way that partners can win new business by adding continuous, best-in-class solutions to cybersecurity, cloud, and DevSecOps offerings. Synac partners with organizations around the world to make them safer, more resistant to cyber attacks, and more capable of finding and fixing dangerous vulnerabilities before attackers are able to exploit them. Learn more at Synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K.com.